Hello. I have a trash mouth that spews swear words. You've been warned. Welcome to the post-holiday episode of Punk Like Her. I'm your saucy host, Bianca. And in case you were wondering, I didn't get hundreds of dollars of tech in my Christmas stocking. I got normal stuff like chocolate. Because, well, quite frankly, it's hard to get a sugar daddy when you're all, like, married and monogamous and stuff. And you also just hate most people. So, um... Yeah, anyway, I got some really thoughtful gifts. I got a Riot Girl anthology from my sister, and my husband made a point to get me some band t-shirts from badass female bands, including The Runaways, which leads me to today's topic, The Runaways. But, um, look how good I am at tying that shit in. I deserve, like, a really shitty medal. Anyway, did I watch the 2010 Runaways movie? Nope. Why not? I don't know. Probably because I didn't want to taint my brain. And right now, as I'm sitting here recording, I'm justifying that decision in that cinematic dramatizations won't influence the story I've researched. I'm also hanging on to a seed of doubt here that everyone will be bored of this episode because it'll be describing the movie word for word. If you're thinking, this worry is unfounded, hold my beer, because my husband was once running a Dungeons & Dragons one-shot, and it was literally the plot to Gladiator. So all us players there are quoting Gladiator and having a good laugh, and he has no idea why we're all laughing so much, because the guy had never seen the Gladiator. Like, what the fuck? Every one-shot he's run with this group since then never lets him forget it, and ask him what movie we're playing this session. So, uh, bear with me. So, I'm not ready to dive into all things Joan Jett, so let's put a pin on it and focus on Sherry Curie. She was the lead vocals of the band. Anyway, let's say that makes sense that we'll focus on her because stuff, well, arbitrary decision. Okay, so let's look at the timeline going with 1977 as the generally agreed-upon year that punk was started. The Runaways are technically pre-punk since they kicked off in 1975. So I'm acknowledging right now they're not following... (laughs) They're not falling into the punk criteria, but more that glam rock criteria. No whining. I know this is a punk podcast, but bear with me. Punk doesn't exist in a bubble. It was influenced by what came before it, and things afterward were influenced by punk, so it's like the circle of life, whatever. From the outside, from the millennial vantage point, we see five badass women who made up one of the first all-female rock bands. It has a legendary status, and it's beautiful, and the costumes are a little ABBA meets hard rock, but it was the 70s and were forgiving. The Runaways are a beacon of female empowerment. If only things were as neat and tidy as the view from the outside. If only they fit into that role perfectly. For little girls everywhere, they were that, and that counts for something. But unfortunately, the true story behind the Runaways is upsetting 
like really upsetting. So if you're looking for a lighthearted episode, this isn't it. This is a blanket trigger warning for all the shitty stuff that could happen. So yeah. All right. Okay, cool. Still with me? Cool. So uh, when I was a teenager, I picked up a book about rock and roll history or something of that sort. And I flipped open to the page about the runaways. And I still remember this, like this quote from this book. And it said that the runaways were record producer Kim Fowley's wet dream. At first, I was like, wow, this book was written in poor taste. And I wish that was true. But Kim Fowley should be best known for being a sexual predator. The members of the Runaways were not women. They were teenage girls. They were underage, and he took advantage of that. But enough about that waste of human existence. Let's start from the beginning with Sherry. Sherry Curie was born November 30th, 1959 in California. For those of you keeping track, she is the third person I cover with a, no with a November birthday. So naturally, I think I'm onto something, some punk-wide conspiracy, but that's a ramble for another day. Sherry has an identical twin sister named Marie, who was initially scouted by Fowley and Joan Jett, to join the band. When she turned them down, Sherry jumped at the opportunity to audition for the Runaways. Spoiler, she got the spot as the lead singer. She was only 15 at the time. Their sound is... How do I describe the Runaways' sound? Even though they look like a glam rock band, they don't sound super glammy. They play hard and fast, and it's not all drawn out like a sparkle ballad. Their sound is grungy, so, I'm gonna be like, uh, the Runaways invented punk. Ha! Take that, Ramones! Alright, so, all facetiousness aside, the band hit it off. They toured all over. They even toured Japan without parental supervision. Which sounds like a teenage dream, but not so much. While you think a bunch of teenagers would appeal to a teenage audience, you might be right, but that's not who came flocking to their shows. Grown-ass men would come to watch them perform in lingerie because who doesn't love being fetishized by gross old men? Oh, and drugs were everywhere. I mean, we've all heard those 70s rock and roller stories. Heck, even Bowie's Rebel Rebel song has the line, You got your cue line and a handful of lewds. Just casually slipped in there, like no big deal. So the band, uh, in general, were taking a lot of quaaludes and cocaine because, I don't know, they wanted to be sedated, but really fast! It's like a kind of more hardcore version of ye old vodka Red Bull, except, you know, way more fucked. You know, that whole, like, overdose thing that, you know, could happen. Anyway, quick side note about quaaludes, or ludes, as Bowie refers to them went by many names, including Disco Biscuits. Fucking Disco Biscuits. I'm just... I ha I read that in a... Yeah. Anywho, they were a pharmaceutical drug that had been around since the 50s, and it was a sedative hypnotic. Um, I'm not sure what that means. I have friends who work in pharmaceuticals, so maybe I'll ask them. Um, but basically, it was used to treat, like, insomnia, uh, act as a muscle relaxant, and as the kind of category suggests it's a sedative 
And then in the late 60s, it started being used as a recreational drug. You know, what's better than digging through grandma's medicine cabinet to get your fix, am I right? And for that reason, they were taken off the market in the early 80s. Hearing, you know, how prevalent quaaludes were in the rock scene at, in the 70s and then finding out they were, dis, you know, taken off the shelves, essentially. I just picture a whole bunch of, like, disco bros hoarding this, this, this shit, like, like, mad panic. Like, almost like Elaine in Seinfeld with her contraceptive sponges. Like, are you sponge-worthy? It's like you go to a party. It's this party. Quaalude-worthy. All right. Back to the depressing story of the Runaways. Fowley was both a tough manager in terms of keeping the teens on a strict rehearsal and performance schedule. He was also a garbage manager in that he had these underage girls put on highly sexualized performances and even went so far as to have sex in front of them because, according to him, they needed to uh, learn what sex was. Why was that necessary? It wasn't. <laughs> Why did he think this was necessary? I don't fucking know. To add insult to injury, Bally and the other manager got rich off the band, while Sherry and the other girls got fucked over in terms of money. Uh, on top of just that amazing resume that Bally has, he was he allegedly drugged and raped 16-year-old Jackie Fox, the basis for the Runaways. So. There was no trial, so it has to stay out allegedly, so we'll just leave it at that. So a lot of articles I read through phrased things like, it was a more permissive time, or there wasn't a clear line with what constituted statutory rape. I call bullshit. I call bullshit on all of this. I call bullshit so hard. I know I wasn't around in the 70s, but let's look at some facts in the 70s in the USA, most of the USA's minimum drinking age was 21, but no state's minimum drinking age was under 18. You also had to be at least 18 to join the military, 17 if you had parental consent. So there's a, there's a few markers there of adulthood, you know, 18 to vote, it's there too. I'm just going to leave that there. And I don't care how romanticized sex with a minor was at the time. It's still wrong. You can romanticize anything if you try hard enough. Articles tell of a time where teenage groupies would throw themselves at rock stars and they're like, oh, what was I supposed to do? And uh, I'm just going to say you were the adult in the situation. You could uh, shut it down, say no, call venue security or the cops to escort these girls the fuck home. Teenagers are not mentally equipped to make sound decisions in this regard. Their frontal fucking lobe isn't fully developed. Also, by the sounds of it, these rock stars had the pick of their groupies. So why not go for someone their own goddamn age? Anyway, by the time she was 17, Cherie had been impregnated by one of the band's managers. Apparently it was not Foley. And she ended up having an abortion, and around that time, she just was so burnt out and strung out on drugs and just exhaustion that she had to quit the band. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a hell of a mouthful right there. That's a lot for a 17-year-old. 
And even after leaving the band, Cherie still had a hard time with substance abuse. So this next part of Cherie's story is just, um, wow. <laughs> so shortly after leaving the band, she was, you know, out and about and she got picked up by a limousine. Little did she know the driver was not only an obsessed fan, but a serial killer. The driver had killed six women in Texas. And uh, this particular night, the man kidnapped her, brought her to an abandoned house to rape and assault her. Somehow, she was able to get a hold of a knife and stab him and then run like hell. I can't imagine what was going through her mind. I've never had to stab someone, so I'll count myself fortunate there. Okay. Okay, Enough with the sad stuff. In the 80s, Shuri got clean and actually become, became a tech at the Coldwater Psych and Drug Facility. For Shuri, it felt like a good fit. A lot of the teenagers at the facility were the same age she was when she was in the runaways and got into drugs and all that. Her biography, Neon Angel, was originally supposed to be for teenagers, but it quickly turned into a kind of tell-all better suited for an adult audience. That's not all. Well, obviously, with all the trauma she encountered, she ended up in therapy, and the therapy was just disappointing and wasn't helpful. So she kind of went out there into the world to find an outlet that worked for her. And I bet you can't guess what it is. All right, I'll tell you. It's chainsaw art, as in making wood sculptures, but using a fucking chainsaw. And that's so fucking powerful. That's so metal. I love it. So, yeah. And then Sherry encountered Fowley in his later years before he died of cancer, I think. And she was able to get closure on everything that transpired while she was in the runaways. Um, she was able to talk it all through with him. And by the sounds of it, he, she actually got a genuine apology from him. So if forgiveness is your thing, there you go. There's a sort of happy ending there. So I got some fun facts for you, as I usually do. So fun fact number one, before fronting the Runaways, Cherie and her sister appeared as background dancers on American Bandstand. And here I was thinking American Bandstand was only in the 50s, but it went well into the 80s, I believe. So go figure. Guess my TV knowledge isn't as good as I thought it was. Fun fact number two, after The Runaways, Cherie and her twin sister released two albums together in the 80s. She also released a few solo albums. None of them did super well, so we'll just move on. Fun fact number three, Cherie was one of the four protagonists in the 1980 film Foxes. It sounds like a depressing film, so I don't think it's high up on my list of movies I want to watch. Maybe when things are less COVID-y and depressing, I'll maybe give it a, a, a look-see. But for now, I'm going to put that off for a little bit. And that's a wrap. So thank you to The Leftovers for, for providing the theme song. And the sources for this episode can be found on my website, punklikeher.com. They include uh, Wikipedia, of course, The Guardian, grunge.com. Yeah, everything will, will be linked. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I had some people reach out to me this week to tell me nice things about the podcast, so, so thank you for the love. 
And as always, just remember to like subscribe to the podcast and like the podcast and the pages and the Instagram and the Facebook and just just do the thing so that other people can find the thing. All right. Good night, everyone. I think I'm going to take a nap.